I mean, Brett, I'm talking to people on the streets of New York City and, you know, even they're calling for transparency. Even they think it's time that we we really get to the bottom of why this happened and who's really responsible. That's really good to hear. Oh, my God. So members of the public already that that's our whole goal is to educate people and make them aware of this. It's music to my ears that that you said that. <laughs> and I almost feel like the war that George Bush took us on that little road that he took us down was an effort to distract us from where we really should have been going after 9-11 and that's after Saudi Arabia and it's one thing Republicans and Democrats can agree on that every president over the last 20 or 30 years has been in bed with Saudi Arabia. Alice, you're giving me chills here. Oh my God. Maybe you should just, maybe you should just go out there and start slamming people because that's what we've been screaming. But you know what? The, the average news cycle only has time for so much. So year after year, we relive where we were, who we lost, how we coped. Nope, not anymore. Not, not 20 years later. We've told that story 19 years in a row. Oh, woe is me. Be sad for me. Listen, I get it. It's important. And I lost my dad. But like here I am, a family member saying, I don't want to do the emotional story 20 years later. I want to do the get to the bottom of this, get the truth out story. I want to do we're pissed off at our own government story. I think what's most chilling for me is that you got promises from the Biden administration that they were finally going to be transparent with you with these investigations that were underway that even the 9-11 commission didn't know about and you have a meeting with president trump and the next day william barr says that state secrets yep where do you go from here i mean where are we right now you had some interviews in june correct we had depositions in June. Uh, we've actually had 24 depositions starting in January, but the three big ones came in June. Um, those were the three individuals who are named in the FBI documents that I sent you. Thumeri, uh, Bayumi, and Jara. Jara, Jara was, the, was, was one of the major ones. His name was actually redacted for the entire time, and state secrets was invoked on his name. Um, but then the DOJ inexplicably forgot to redact his name in a court filing. And Mike Isakoff from Yahoo News picked up on it and exploded that story. And everyone's scratching their heads going, wait a minute. Why, why, why was our government keeping this name from us secret for 20 years? The sky did not fall. Pandora's box did not open. It, it, it didn't, it, you know, there was nothing national security. And the whole excuse the whole time was national security. We can't let this guy's name out. And then his name came out and nothing happens. It's like, what else are you guys hiding under the guise of national security? You know, documents that are 20 years old. And it's looking more and more likely. And it's actually, I mean, the timing of this is ironic because yesterday you had the arrest of that guy, Tom Barrack. And he is very well connected to the Trump administration. And he was working for the UAE, but also Saudi Arabia. And our lawyers, they think maybe he was the ugly man behind the curtain this entire time telling Trump to not help us and, and like, you know, distracting everybody from the Saudi role and running interference. So the, more to come on that. I don't have enough to comment on that yet, but um, that's an interesting new twist to this whole story. Um, well, I, I just find it hard to believe that this guy's name slipped. Right. But we, we, <laughs> we think we have help on the inside. We think there are good people still in the FBI, still in the DOJ that are trying to help us as much as they can. Because not only did Jara's name slip, but in June we had the depositions 
and the depositions were sealed, meaning that only the lawyers could see them. So how disgusting is that, that me, I can't, I can't see this deposition about a person that's accused of killing my dad or helping those that killed my dad. And the government made our lawyers sign these, these gag orders. And Jara's entire deposition somehow gets leaked. How does that happen? 600 pages of testimony. Come to find out, the entire deposition, the FBI knew that he was a bad guy. He had child porn on his computer. Um, and they had a FISA warrant out for him, but the FBI did nothing. They like tried to threaten him with all the child porn that they collected on his computer. And this is a Saudi government official working in Washington, D.C., accused of helping the hijackers. And the FBI goes, whoops, what? We didn't see any of that. And that's what our government is protecting. It's it's their own kind of screw ups and failures. And um, again, Mike Isakoff somehow. <laughs> Somehow he must have a source that is like just feeding him the stuff because he, he broke that story about, you know, how, how the depositions are, or at least how Jara's deposition went. Um, no, our government, our government never did the job it was supposed to do. Our government let these guys walk and they never indicted them and they never did anything with these guys. And they're all three Saudi government officials. So one of the FBI reports names all three of those individuals, Jara, Thumeri, and Bayoumi. Those three guys were Saudi government officials, two of which were probably agents of the kingdom, like uh, secret secret agents of the kingdom. Because we sell them a lot of arms. What What is it? What do you think is the bottom line here? I think it's a lot. I think it's that for a while we were dependent on them to stabilize the world oil markets. So there's the oil lobby that we're up against. There's also the weapons lobby, Boeing, um, Raytheon, hundreds of billions of dollars in weapons contracts. I think it's a cover-up of our intelligence failures pre-9-11. Um, and it's also it's the cover-up for Bush's foreign policy decision to go into Iraq. And, you know, why did we invade Iraq? We invaded the wrong country. And it's one of those things where it's like, you tell one lie, you have to tell 10,000 just to keep the original lie up. And, and I've always said, even, even when I was younger, and the more I learn about this, is that how the hell did 19 hijackers with no knowledge of English, no money, no, no, no experience in Western culture, no idea how to fly a plane. They couldn't even make it out of the airport because they don't even know what an exit sign means. How could it be that those people pulled off the most consequential and devastating attack in United States soil without any help from anybody? No, they had help. They had a Saudi support network in place. And that's the crux of our lawsuit is a support network that was here established a year before they arrived. The Saudi support network set them up for the hijackers to be successful. And Stephen Moore goes on to say in his sworn affidavit that were it not for that Saudi support network, the hijackers would have had a 0% chance of, of success. So um, it, it's our government's unwillingness to face the uncomfortable truth is that there were bad elements within the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that were responsible for the success of the hijackers. What do you hope happens between now and the 20th anniversary we need to get president president the buck stops at the president he has the capacity to declassify all these documents the government doesn't even deny that they have them that's that's the most disturbing thing is the government is saying well yes we have documents and the documents are the documents that you're looking for and they're documents that would allow you to be successful but we can't give them to you because they're too sensitive what the hell does that mean they're too sensitive? My dad was murdered. How is that not too sensitive? We need our government to do the right thing once and for all 
and have the Biden administration do what the three previous administrations before him failed to do. And it's take the side of the 9-11 families over the side of the Saudis. Yeah, but is the argument going to be there's some kind of greater good here that uh, the, the entire world will be destabilized if we uncover what they have been up to? That's a bunch of... B- okay, so then, so then give us the explanation of what the greater good is. There's no legitimate reason. You know, I talked to former former members of the intel community that are not working for us, former members of the CIA that are working for us, and they're saying that sources and methods or national security that's 20 years old is totally and completely irrelevant 20 years later. When 9-11 happened, the iPhone wasn't even out, all right? There's no such thing as, like, these iMessaging and all this. The world has changed since then. So there's no more sources and methods that we're trying to protect. It's all embarrassment and it's it's embarrassment. And the fact that the government says that there's a greater good or that the sky is going to fall or Pandora's box is going to open, that's the Saudi PR talking line. They have more influence than, than you and I can even imagine. I mean, look what just happened to you the other day. You got cut off. Uh, I, didn't, I did a two-hour-long interview with Aaron Burnett uh, two years ago. And it just, for whatever reason, they said, oh, we're pulling it, but we're not going to air it. So they, they, their tentacles reach deep into our system, and they, they don't want this story coming out because they don't want to have to be held accountable. And, they don't, and, and the thing is, is that they're never held accountable. And they've never been held accountable for 9-11, and look what happens. Pensacola happens, where you have three U.S. airmen shot and killed by radical, you know, Saudis, Saudi airmen. Uh, you have Khashoggi happen. Uh, you have all these really bad things happen because nobody holds these people accountable. You have a war in Yemen where they just carpet bomb like people. It's the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world. And no one wants to hold these guys accountable for anything. Why did what was CNN's excuse? Oh, they couldn't. Oh, they couldn't slot it. I think that, that, that something came up and I get it. Like we're always up against competing media stories. But it's like, well, they said that they couldn't slot it, and they're going to slot it, they're going to slot it, and then all of a sudden, they just stopped responding to us. So, like, they, like, kind of strung us along, all along, and then and then they just completely just said, yeah, we're not doing it. How about this year? Talking to a lot of people, actually. Thank God. Um, we're doing a couple international documentaries with NHK and CBC. So there's a lot of people that are doing bigger stories for around the anniversary, and um, you know, the main focus is this, is the unanswered questions, the Saudi role, why our government is holding this evidence. Um, we've got a lot of support in the Senate, uh, you know, just steadfast people okay. that have been with us for six, seven years. I mean, we're trying everything, <laughs> literally trying everything. We're actually staging a protest um, on August 11th in D.C. in front of the White House, and we're going to hopefully get some camera crews there. And okay. Just, you know, I, I think our whole strategy is just leverage the attention that the world is going to have on the 20th anniversary to get our story out. And we can't, we can't let 20 years go by and have our government do nothing. We just can't allow that to happen. And Biden is no longer responding to you? We're trying. I mean, we've tried. Biden has never responded to us. Um, he, he, well, he did when he was on the campaign trail. He wrote, I sent you that letter. I think you saw it. Yeah. And since he's been elected president, We've only been able to get message, messages in through his administration. Um, but again, they're slow rolling it. And every time Director Ray or A.G. Garland goes to Congress, when they go to Capitol Hill, 
we ask them questions and we have friendly senators and friendly reps that are that are peppering them every time. And the response is the typical, you know, it's a punt. It's, oh, we care deeply about the 9-11 families. We'll have to look into this. We'll have to look into this. And what they're doing, Alice, is that they're slow rolling us, is that they're they're, they're dragging it out, hoping that they can just get through to 9-12 when the world's media attention goes back to, like, who, I don't know, the Kardashians or whatever, right? And it's just like they, all they need to do is just get through this. But we're, we're going to try to make that as hard hard is we're going to try to make that really uncomfortable for them and uh, well what you need you've got former fbi people former cia people who decided that they wanted to help you don't they have dirt come on you guys need dirt you need some serious dirt because that's the only thing that's going to expose these people you have dirt we expose it you help us because i don't know how else to move the dial here it is inconceivable to me that after 20 years Democrats and Republicans alike have failed you. That is, that is, I, I just, it boggles my mind. It is absolutely unacceptable. And you're trying to play by the book. Now, the, these three names that came out, when did they, just tell me again, when did these three names surface so that your lawyers were able to depose them? They couldn't depose them before now. Right. So we got on uh, September, uh, on September, 11th or 10th of 2020 uh the 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 federal judge uh, the federal federal magistrate judge rather in in our lawsuit which is resides in the southern district of manhattan uh gave our lawyers the ability to depose 24 former and current members of the kingdom of saudi arabia 24 and a judge does not order discovery willy-nilly Right. A judge orders discovery if there's credible evidence. We were, we were able to depose 24 members of the royal family and members of the Saudi government. And those depositions started in January and they just concluded in June of 2021. And the last three were the three big ones, Thumeri, Bayoumi and Jara. So for the first time ever, those three individuals had to appear and it was all done remotely. They were in Riyadh and Morocco. Um, and it was all done remotely, and our lawyers got to question them each for two to three days. And everything's sealed. And everything is sealed. How about that? Wow, Brett. Now, you, you, were, you were 15 years old when your father died. What, when did you become involved with this? I became involved about five years ago in 2016 when uh, JASTA was just coming on and when JASTA was becoming popular and I had been following along all along, but I was in college at the time and I was focused on my career and graduating and focused on all the normal things that a college age kid should be focused on. And I just, you know, I kind of put this in the back of my mind and I never really bought the narrative that, you know, these 19, um, cavemen really were able to pull off this most consequential and destructive attack on American history on American soil. And, um, when I, when I graduated college and got a career and, and, and got married and kind of had some time to like reflect upon things and look back on, on my past 15 years, post nine 11, I started asking questions. I started reading more. I started reading books by, you know, um, you know, the looming tower, I started reading stuff by Ali Soufan and, um, 
all the roads that pointed to Saudi Arabia and why our government chose to look the other way. Why all the investigations into Saudi Arabia were shut down, underfunded and disbanded. And then uh, JASTA came on board and I was really interested and excited to help out with JASTA because that, in my view, was the only way to get get this truth out was to allow a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit to happen. And we needed JASTA to pass in order to be able to have the jurisdiction to hold Saudi Arabia accountable. So it was my goal early on. I said, I want to do one thing in honor of my dad. And I want to get my U.S. House representative, Rosa DeLora, to be a co-sponsor of this legislation. So I set out with a very modest goal to get one co-sponsor. And when Rosa heard, heard, heard our story and, and heard what was, see, we had to explain to a lot of members of Congress too, you know, what was happening. She, she co-sponsored it. You know, it took about two weeks to get their office on board. Once that happened though, it ignited this fire in me. And I said, if I can get Rosa, I could go get Jim Himes. I could go get Joe Courtney. I can get everyone in Connecticut. So then my next goal was to get every House member in Connecticut to sponsor this legislation. And I knocked them off one by one. Then all of a sudden, the lawyer started paying attention and goes, hey, who the heck is this kid from Connecticut that just got us five co-sponsors? Like, we should we should start talking to him because, he, you know, they're, they're doing something right up in Connecticut. So then that's when I met the lawyers and the, and the law firm and the team. And I've been communicating with them daily ever since five years ago. Wow. Yeah. What do you do for a living? I mean, I have a full-time job, believe it or not. Although people think I do this full-time, I don't. This is just the this is just you know my passion and my drive. Um, but I'm a community banker, so I work at a community bank here in Connecticut. Yeah. Wow. And you have kids. I have one. We just had our first baby, a uh, little girl, Josephine. She just turned one a month ago. Yeah. Yep. It's busy. It's busy. <laughs> Yeah, this is really. I mean, the the this this could this could eat up your whole life. It it really it, could. It does. I mean, I don't have much free time, and you know, I, I you know, I it's 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 hard for my wife, and I get it, and I understand, and she's been very supportive. But I can you know, I sense that there's frustration sometimes when I have to be in Washington or New York, and I have to go away for two days. Right. So let's let's go back to to nine eleven. I mean, what I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times. Are you tired of talking about it? Are you tired of being asked the same questions? Where were you? What were you doing? How did you get through it? it it's it's okay. I mean, as long as, you know, like I said, we, we've told this story for 19 years. As long as the end goal is to honor my dad and honors, honor those that died to do the right thing. Like, I don't want to talk about this for a, for a, for a soft, sobby piece that's not going to get to the heart of the issue. Like, you know, I don't want to open up and, and, and cry on camera and then have them not even raise the fight that we've been fighting for 15 years. So, you know, I'm happy to do it. And, you know, cause I know that you're down the right path. And, uh, that's, that's always my one thing when I you know talk to the producers of these, you know, th there's going to be a lot of documentaries and specials coming out. And, and, and the deal was, is that we'll share our story, but we want you to tell our story too. Because the media loves to just kind of turn the other way when it gets a little uncomfortable or a little complicated or when they have to do a little bit of work and research and understand, it, you know, it's just easy for them to tell the tell the emotional story. Right. And they don't have time for anything else. The New York Times did did give us a good article in January of 2020, but it was a collaboration between ProPublica and New York Times. It was in the magazine, their Sunday magazine. 
they, they did a very in-depth um, expose of Operation Encore, which that's the secret um, FBI investigation that happened for 12 years after the 9-11 commission. And the New York Times kind of broke that story, but it, it didn't, it didn't go as far as we thought that it would go. I know. Believe me, I know it's frustrating. So you're from Connecticut. Now, were a lot of people affected in, in your town? So where I live, no, I was the only one, which, which made it, which was, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It was, it was good in the sense that I didn't have to like deal with it every day because I was the only one within an hour of me. Uh, my dad was stationed, was in, we lived in Middletown, Connecticut, Middlefield, which is two and a half hours away from the city. And he was um, on a temporary assignment at the World Trade Center, actually. So he was only supposed to be there for six months. He managed Westfield Malls, if you're familiar with like the Garden State oh. Plaza. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my dad was the manager of all the malls on the East Coast for Westfield. And he, uh, Westfield had recently just engaged in a lease for the retail space at the World Trade Center. Uh, Westfield and the Port, uh, Westfield and Larry Silverstein properties leased 100 percent of the world trade center complex which is owned by the port authority and they signed a 99-year lease and westfield's portion was one percent and that one percent comprised the subterranean retail space so there's fulton station underneath and present day it's currently a mall but there's always been a mall there and my westfield's number one project at the time was the redevelopment of this new space that they just acquired through the lease and they wanted my dad there on site to run the job. And they said that just, just be there four or five days a week. It's only going to last six months, get it up and running. And then you can go back to your corporate office in Connecticut. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's why he was there that day. And he was only on the 17th floor. And he was one of the only ones that we know about that was below the impact zones that, that didn't get out of the building. And um, we spoke to him. Actually, my brother, Kyle, spoke to him on the phone uh, after both planes had hit. So he survived the initial impacts. And uh, he told my brother that he was helping with the evacuation process and that uh, he would get out as soon as he thought that it was okay to do so. And um, my brother on the phone said that he was pleading with my dad. He said, get out of the building, please just get out. Like the TV newscasters are saying that people should get out of the building, despite what you may be hearing. And um, my brother said that it was chaos in the background, people screaming and everything. And, um, the last we heard was that, uh, that day, and this is all pieced together from colleagues of his that were on the floor and the, that were with him. They said that, um, <clears throat> communication that day was terrible. The, the police officers couldn't communicate with each other. The firemen on the 70th floor couldn't communicate with the firemen on the command post. So my dad had the idea because, again, he worked for the mall and they had the walkie talkies that you see when the janitorial staff communicates and the maintenance staff communicates. They all have those portable walkie talkies. So my dad had like a box, he had a box of 24 of them back up on the 17th floor. <clears throat> so his colleagues had said that they last saw him in the lobby going in the stairwell back up the stairs to go, his plan was to get the box of radios and bring them back to the NYPD command post and give them to the firefighters so they can communicate with each other. And that, that was the last anyone had heard of him was he was going back in to ascend the stairs to grab the radios. And, you know, it's, it's bittersweet because it's like the selfish part of me thinks, dad, why the hell did you have to do that? Like, 
you know, you could have just walked out the front door and been here with us today. But then the proud side of me says, well, he, he did that because that's who he was and he died a hero. So it's always been a hard thing to grapple with. It's like, there's the anger of it that he, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't choose to think of us. But then there's like the side that it's like, well, he's, he was a selfish, selfless person and saw that a lot of people were going to die and he felt the need to stay there to help them. Did you reach out to other kids who lost? I mean, what did you do? I, how did you get no, through it? I mean, I, I didn't, I, I stayed away from all that. We actually never even went to New York. We never went to the memorials down there. We did, we came together as a family and the community We're we're from a small town, um, Durham and Middlefield, Connecticut are very, very small towns. They're rural towns. And the community came out to support us. Um, the next city over, Middletown, came out to support us. And uh, just a tremendous outpouring of support. Almost like, depending on what type of person you are, like my mom hated it. Because <laughs> she doesn't like to be, like, she doesn't like people feeling bad for her and the pity. And she just hates the center of attention, hates the camera, hates all that. So, like, for her, it, it, it was probably a good thing that we weren't like in lower Fairfield County or Northern New Jersey because you, there you, there you couldn't, you know, I talked to, I've talked to people now that they, they literally couldn't escape it for a year. Like every day they would come home and there'd be somebody at their house. And, and I think it just depends on who you are as a person and a family. So for us, we just, we distance ourselves from it and we, we wanted to just, we just kind of shut down to the whole world like for, for a long time. And, we, we really, really thanked our community for their support. But, you know, six months in, you kind of have to move on. And, you know, I'm, I mean, otherwise you're going to go crazy. So that's how we did it was we leaned on the community for the first couple of months. And, and I'm, we're so grateful, like, to the country. And it's one thing I tell a lot of people that I talk to is that we have the greatest country in the world. We really do, despite all the headlines, despite all the polarization, despite all that. The people in this country are still good people, but our government, our government is awful and our government is, is not, should not be put in the same realm as our country because the country are the people and the government is this bureaucracy and this big entity that does whatever the hell they want and they're not held accountable for anything. I mean, I don't know what more we can do. You know, we have U.S. senators threatening the, the the executive branch of government and still nothing happens so i'm kind of went down a side uh, a tangent there but it's like we are so we're so grateful for the support of of everyone and that's why i have such pride in this country and that's why it makes it so hard for me to to feel like the country doesn't have our backs like we we <laughs> we we sacrificed my dad and we did everything our our government asked us to do we didn't sue the airlines. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't try to sue the FBI. We didn't try to blame our CIA. We didn't try to blame any of that for happening. We said this was a really bad thing that happened. We get it. We're understanding. We did everything our government asked of us. And our government 20 years ago failed us because they failed to prevent 9-11. The FBI's primary duty is to uphold and defend the Constitution and prevent its citizens from, from being hurt. And they failed in their primary duty. What is so sickening and makes me so sad is that 20 years later, they're rubbing salt on an open wound 
and they're not giving us the documents to do the job that they didn't do. So we, we need their help. We need the information that they have. We, we need it unsealed and given to us so we can prove in court that, look, the Saudis were responsible for this. And you would think that 20 years later, they failed us. It would be jumping. They would be chomping at the bit to help us instead of doing the exact opposite. 